At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 518th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who balances the larger world context with local, practical, and creative solutions. We're talking with David Holmgren about downshifting to a resilient future. Since developing permaculture with Bill Mullison in the mid-1970s, David's local and global influence has gone beyond permaculture networks. He is a public intellectual working outside of academia, government, and corporate support. His depth of thinking, design practice, and teaching has been continually informed by practical experience through a lifetime of household self-resilience, voluntary simplicity, and innovative action. He has received many awards, including an honorary PhD from Central Queensland University. He's also written eight books about permaculture and related topics, been a part of at least five other books, written multiple articles, given numerous presentations, has over 40 years of practical experience. We are honored to have you on the show today, David. Are you ready to rock permaculture? Yes, definitely. Excellent. I'm going to shift on you, and I would like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Easy to think of lots of little ones, but I suppose inevitably, with a question like that, tend to think about larger ones. And I thought of one that is probably really relevant to a lot of your listeners, because in developing our property of Meliodora over the last 35 years, we've Obviously, soil improvement and soil development is sort of the most important thing you're doing in some ways. And in the early 90s, I made some big mistakes with overuse of dolomite. Um, And, you know, after I realised what I'd done, uh, you know, it was really quite devastating that we'd had our soils start to go tighter, more compacted in spite of large amounts of organic matter. And the improvements that had been happening sort of started to tail down and then go into reverse after the first decade of intensive vegetable growing on our site. And I sort of went back to studying those issues. We did full element soil tests, which we hadn't done previously to that because, you know, they were quite expensive at the time. We didn't have much money and I was unsure about the interpretation of how best to use those soil tests. So there was a whole new learning that went into that and reviving things that I'd forgotten and a lot of trials and 
mineral amendments, but it was also patiently living with the consequences, right. continuing to garden and it, sort of settling into, yes, I have made this mistake. I can't walk away from this. I see so many people in the modern world constantly walking away from their mistakes, you know, like their mistakes in their relations with neighbours or <laughs> other, other people, partners or, you know, so often in the modern world we can just just move on. Oh, well, right. you know, that didn't work. So I think it is important to live with that. And the particular nature of dolomite lime with both magnesium and calcium, in excess, magnesium in the soil is, is something that doesn't readily go away because it makes the soil more aggregated, clay soils more sticky, more retentive. And then, you know, a whole lot of the qualities we're trying to get in soil, not just for practical reasons, but for nutrient and life exchange uh, stymie. So what I learned from that was that chemistry can be definitely more powerful than biology in both good and bad ways, and that you can definitely overdo a good thing. <laughs> right. Because there's this deep thing that if we get a, a result from doing something, there's a tendency to think more will be better. Yes. And our organic agronomist uh, has this lovely saying, don't be a moron. Oh, <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, so so that was a, a very hard lesson. And also that intensive food production for decades on the same ground is still one of the greatest balancing acts. Yes. We find with a lot of you know, when we're growing vegetables, we're growing the most highly selected plants that, you know, on the planet that just have huge nutrient requirements, but also that, of course, needs to be in balance. And as you get to greater fertility, sometimes it naturally shifts into that sweet point of perfect balance, but it can also run off the rails very easily and on a smaller scale we can intervene so powerfully that broadacre farmers can't do because it's it's so costly to you know so they have to think very very carefully about am i putting on one or two tons of lime to the hectare whereas a gardener oh that's one handful to the square meter oh did i put out any last year right <laughs> you know, we can intervene so powerfully in small spaces that we can get into a state where mm, the sensible thing is to put this into some sort of permanent fallow and go and garden somewhere else. <laughs> you know, that we can muck things up as well as create greater fertility. And of course, nature left to its own devices with enough time will sort of tend to fix most of those things. But of course, if we are gardening in, in limited spaces, it's very important to maintain that fertility. So I, th I think... I would regard that as one of, yeah, fairly major oh, failure. Yeah. And we talked about that in Retro Suburbia too, because I think sometimes within permaculture there tends to be an overconfidence about biology can trump the limitations of chemistry and geology just by that sort of bootstraps process. And especially in our country, with the most ancient soils in the world, the most depleted soils, 
it's very different from gardening, say, you know, in the Midwest of the United States on glacial prairie soils or in Japan where everything has had a dusting of volcanic, <laughs> you know, material <laughs> continuously. The geologically young places in the world where that mineral abundance means that just give life a chance and it will, you know, power it up into fantastic balanced fertility. That, you know, in our most ancient soils, that is a more tricky process yeah. because nature has to work with what it's got. And so nature actually evolves ecosystems that are adapted to infertility, but humans evolved with our big brains and high mineral demand in places of actually elevated fertility. So that is a you know very big part that we constantly need to understand and work with. And we tried to sort of distill some of those lessons about complex stuff to do with soil chemistry down to a bit some patterns and guides in the, in the book. Excellent. And what do you consider your biggest success? Oh, well, look, <laughs> rather than saying something like, you know, permaculture, permaculture movement or claiming that, because as I said, I think, you know, to some extent it, it happened to me and is the product right. of huge numbers of people around the world. I'd go back to a, a sort of simple parental thing and say, our son, Oliver Holmgren. <laughs> nice. <laughs> In the sense that we've lived a radical out there at the fringe life and a lot of what happens in a next generation is they go and reject that. Right, exactly. Because push the boundaries that much. You've got to be a bit weird, a bit cranky and it's, uh, you know, there's a strong incentive for the next generation to say, oh, well, that was, I'm not going to do that. And it's not that our son Oliver, who's 33, has not learnt and from some of the things we've done. So, for example, he would be, I would say, more business savvy, more organised, whereas we tend to be a bit more organic, a bit more chaotic even. And, you know, he said to us once, you know, I think you've taken the experiment of maximum integration where everything's connected to everything else to its limits, you know, that work and oh, play are 100% integrated. The, the, you know, there's no time off from what you do. So he's, you know, stepped on the shoulders of what we've done and integrated so many things and certainly, you know, some of the work he's been doing with his partner Tess in developing micro-dairy, he's been effectively the self-taught agricultural engineer who's designed the whole dairy processing system to comply with all the incredibly strict regulations and deal with everything from the stainless steel welding to the computer software to sort of support that system. And, you know, that sort of self-taught, self-learning, do-it-yourself sort of stuff, we're really proud of him doing that. And that's, you know, his achievement, not ours. But I think he would say part of that came from being embedded in the permaculture self-reliance. And that's 
as a kid, I remember he never really helped in the vegetable garden at all. He did other things with animals and things in the workshop, but he never gardened. But as soon as he moved out of home and even before that with friends in the city at university, he'd sort of be helping them getting their backyard gardens happening. <laughs> and everywhere he's gone, he's gardened. So he just osmotically absorbed that. Yeah. And, you know, when you need to do it, it's all there ready and, and waiting. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a sort of, in some ways, it's a more crass thing to brag about than bragging about permaculture as a success. But I think it's, yeah, an appropriate one. Beautifully stated. And what drives you? Well, I think living each day as if we're in a benign energy descent future is the thing that really drives me. That Instead of responding to the technosphere consumer bubble uh, around us, even though I'm talking to you on Skype and obviously use all those things, I live each day as if resources are much more precious than our society treats them and that we need to both save and look after those things and create the abundance that will support that benign energy descent future. So it's really living each day to create the world we want. And uh, I think that is, yeah, the thing that definitely drives me. Excellent. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? did brief me on that and I thought, mm, gee, that's a, a, a tricky one, especially <laughs> right? <the> one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I suppose... I would divide that into thinking about books that deal with big picture understanding stuff and sort of like real practical nitty gritty skill stuff because they seem to be, you know, really a bit different. And that's a bit like my own books, you know, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability is if you like a book of theory and concepts and very abstract Whereas Retro Suburbia, The Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future, is very practical, even though it sort of references those big picture things. So I think for my big picture one, I would say the last book that Howard Odom, American ecologist, who is sort of really the big influence on permaculture for me, his book, Power, Environment and Society, written in 1971, was a major influence as the first reference in Permaculture One. But the last book he wrote called A Prosperous Way Down, along with his wife, Elizabeth Odom, I think is the single book that I'd say in that big picture understanding view that I would recommend. Yeah, really fundamental work to sort of understanding where we need to go and how to think about and understand those uh, systems. So I, I dedicated actually the, uh, the book Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability to his memory after uh, he died the year before that book was published. So A Prosperous Way Down was written in, published in, in 2000, I think. The sort of nitty-gritty practical critical skills, I think I'd have to say the Seed Savers Handbook, um, an Australian publication, the authors Jude and Michelle Fanton, founders of the Seed Savers Network in northern New South Wales. Yeah, sort of been written in an Australian context, but 
a brilliant practical book for you know all the techniques of seed saving and going through vegetable varieties and you know how to get how to save seed from the simple stuff to the really more complicated stuff so right. i think that's that there would be my choices in your bio we actually use the term voluntary simplicity, and that's with a not capitalized V and S. Now, there was actually a book called Voluntary Simplicity. Was yeah. Did you bring those concepts forward? Definitely, because I, I see that as the twin to the permaculture productivity. You can think of that we need to sort of hybridize those ideas of doing less, actually stop doing things, not speed up, not run around like headless chooks. Yeah. <laughs> that voluntary simplicity is about minimizing our needs, about working out how to not do things, how to be satisfied with the simple things of life. And that's a big part of we are talking about in retro suburbia. And the other side of it is, of course, creating permaculture productivity. And in that, we'd see all aspects of building the household and community non-monetary economies that involve, obviously, work, doing stuff, yeah, getting the soil, cranking, you know, all of the those things, we need to combine those two. So it's also playing into that notion that, you know, the, the current levels of consumption are completely unsustainable. And in our own focus on, on that, you know, we've always operated financially at what probably is about uh, classified as the Australian poverty line. And, you know, for many years now, I haven't flown anywhere. And even before that, over the decades, I've always been sceptical about, you know, oh, yes, jump on a plane and fly to the other side of the world for a conference and be there for two days and fly home. And in fact, way back in the 80s, I turned down invitations to conferences in the United States because my minimum was I would have to be there for three months for me to morally justify that huge expenditure of, of energy and resources. So that simplicity is also something that my partner, Sue Dennett, has been you know, more passionate about than me. And in, in a way, I'm the, the guy focused a bit on the permaculture productivity, and she's the one focused on voluntary simplicity. And her passions and influence over the 35 years have been um, mm -hmm. a big part that, you know, show up, especially in the, the latest book. Yeah, nice. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I think wherever we are and whether we're farmers or just consumers we're all eaters and i think the single most important thing i'd say is connect to your sources of sustenance and if those sources are lacking in some ways that they are not sustaining you and the the person who's the people who are the producers the people in that food supply chain and are not sustaining the earth, then you need to change your sources. And so radically reconfiguring that is also involves behavior change about what we eat. So I think that still is, the, you know, the most important thing from a point of view of resilience, from a point of view of health and well-being and 
from a point of view of contributing to a better world. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, David. It's been a a great pleasure. And it's been a great pleasure for me too. This has been an amazing conversation. So how can our listeners get a hold of you and your organization? Well, Holmgren Design is our website. Holmgren Design, that's uh, holmgren.com.au. And you can see some of the things we do there. And the sister site is, uh, of course, through Retro Suburbia that can also access us. And our colleagues run the site permacultureprinciples.com, which is, you know, a, a bigger spectrum of work that connects to us as well through those three sites. Excellent. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash David Holmgren. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.